It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back, everyone, to Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. And this time, we're actually going to deliver on our promise from two episodes ago. We are diving back into China for part two, this time looking at their finances and economics. There's a lot of questions around what's going on in China's economy, and you won't have answers here, but you will have ways to understand it better as you hear more about it. Two very brief announcements. First one is, we just got a bunch of donors recently on Patreon. Thank you so much. That's it. And the second is the podcast of the month for the Agora Podcast Network this month. It is Lands of Leviathan, hosted by Pete and Brock. If you like this show, chances are you'll probably like that show. They cover a lot of political and international relations theory sort of stuff, but they do it from interesting angles. So for example, their most recent episode, actually, sorry, it's not their most recent episode, but it's one that I like because it's called Trump's Iron Throne versus Kim Jong-un's Ice Dragon. So you see they insert a lot of stuff and elements from sci-fi and fantasy to you know make this stuff a lot of fun. So check out Lands of Leviathan. All right, let's jump right in. So China, China, China. Second largest economy in the world, which actually it only became two years ago, passing Japan. Yep, Japan had been hanging on at number two from like the 80s through now. Kind of nuts. But now China's number two. Nominally, it's growing incredibly quickly, this being China, of course. And it seems recession proof. Everyone else got hammered in 2008. China just kept going. We often hear people asking us when the Chinese economy is going to surpass that of the United States. Spoiler alert, we don't know. And how much power they really had to throw their weight around. Is China really a mega powerhouse or is it a mega house of cards ready to fall? Uh, no, it's not that good. I see what you did there. No, it's okay. I see what you did. Right. You did a thing. Thanks. Other questions that a lot of people ask that we're going to try to touch on. Is China a currency manipulator, right? That's something that gets thrown around a lot. And of course, inherent in that in that question is another question, which is, what does it even mean to be a currency manipulator? I don't just, know. You don't know? Then how no. can we talk about it? I think you know because you study this stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Is it just anyone who adjusts interest rates? Is that what makes a currency manipulator a currency manipulator? I hope not. Yeah, because that would mean that everyone's a currency manipulator, right? Except the people who peg. Right, because they, by definition, manipulate their currency. 
Mm-hmm. Um, These are all questions we'll get into. Oh, you're right. But it turns out, as we promised you this show, we are actually going to give you two shows because as we were putting together our notes for it, we realized it was coming quite long. So much of the trade and the currency stuff, we're actually going to get to in part two. Well, actually, I guess this episode is part two, so we'll get to it in part three. Yeah, trade war will be probably next unless we decide to break in with something else, but probably next after this one. So just stay patient. Trade war is coming. We should make a bunch of Star Wars Episode One jokes or something about the Trade Federation. Yes, trade war. There we go. Okay, so let's figure out first how we got here. Xander, do you want to start? Yeah, a little history, a little context. China was a closed economy under Chairman Mao. And Mao was the guy who came to power in the 1940s after World War II and brought China into the realm of communism, made it a communist country. And all that's meant by closed economy is that it really didn't interact much with the world. China was kind of on its own. Now, throughout Mao's reign, he constantly encouraged the maintenance of the revolution, the communist revolution. And in practice, this meant using chaos to keep factions that could potentially challenge him weak preventing them from accumulating power such that the Communist Party remained, you know, staying strong and in charge. So everyone was poor, but in a way, everyone was more equal because they were all poor together. So the struggle was, at least the ideology, considered the struggle to be a shared one. Everyone was in it together. And to understand how Mao drove the economy through just communist zeal, I'm going to share just a couple stories of the early and mid Mao days. So in 1949 to 1955, which is the first five-year plan after the communists took power, China's economy actually picked up substantially due largely to enthusiasm about communism and everyone's desire to work really hard for communism. And they also didn't consume much, right? So everyone was willing to put in a lot of work and produce a lot without being compensated much. And so the state was able to take a lot of the excess. So in this way, it was a lot like a wartime economy, right? Where you ask people to work really hard, extra hours for the group. Hmm. And people are, you know, like in the United States, the GDP blew up. Everyone was, you know, there was a economic growth, but people were still planting victory gardens on their spare time and mostly eating their own food, that kind of thing. So we kind of had a wartime economy going where normal economic incentives were suspended and the GDP grew. But that overzealousness combined with kind of the the problems of party politics, where you need to report good news all the time and beat your quotas, ended up being pretty disastrous. So these different economic units that China was divided into, which were much like Soviets, they vastly overreported their grain production. Now, grain production was up substantially. They reported that it was up even more so that they could get, you know, whatever kind of political handouts they wanted. So those the, there are those incentives coming back into place. That's the reward mechanism is political and social. So they overreported it and all this stuff trickled up to the party. And the party in, in Beijing was like, holy smokes, we're making so much grain that if we don't do something with it, it's going to just rot in the granaries. So we should sell it off to the Soviet Union because we owe them a bunch of money from the war because they were our big creditors. And so they sent a ton of grain to the Soviet Union. 
And it turns out that they sent way too much because they thought they were getting more than they did. And so now we had a major grain shortage and people actually starved en masse during a period where they were producing more grain. And to make this even worse, people were so zealous about meeting their iron quotas that they started melting down their own tools and cooking equipment in order to make iron, which turned out to be slag, like useless slag anyway, because it's hard to make good iron without a good foundry. And so that actually made the famine even worse because people couldn't really cook all that much. So the resulting economic collapse in the later 50s was basically the stupidest and most avoidable mass famine ever. And millions or tens of millions died. And Mao continually attempted to regain the magic of those first four to five years, but never could. You know, he kicked off the culture revolution, which was socially quite successful, but also involved a bunch of kids kicking their their bosses, their professors, doctors out of their jobs, turning their parents into re-education camps, which also had a predictably negative impact on the economy. So it was chaos. As I understood it, Eric, and by all means, correct me if I'm wrong, but at least during the Great Leap Forward and maybe the incidents that you just recounted as an earlier one, that the push to melt down steel was not just due to revolutionary zealotry, but it was actually mandated by the party as a sort of forced industrialization attempt. And then no one had tools left to farm with. Is that not right? Absolutely precisely. Yeah. So the party put down quotas about like, you have to build these little foundries and start producing iron. And at least the propaganda about why you need to produce all this iron was actually to create artillery shells to finally defeat the Guomindang, the Nationalist Party, hold up in Taiwan so that China could finally be unified and the war could truly be over. And so that's where the zeal came in, because not only was it mandated, but people were like, yeah, we got to take Taiwan. We got to, you know, we got to unite the country. So people kind of like lovingly threw their scythes and their cooking pans into these terrible homemade foundries in an attempt to make iron. And it mostly became scrap. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. This is what blind zealotry does, guys. Yeah. After we're, well, we're clearly skipping over a little history here, but Mao died in, (laughs) (laughs) and then in 1976, in between, it doesn't matter. Uh, No, it does clearly. But Mao died in 1976. And a few years later, a guy named Deng Xiaoping took over. And while Deng was a disciple of Mao, he was, you know, had been involved in the Communist Party. He was not like an outsider or anything. He was the definition of an insider, although he had gone through phases of being exiled from the party as well, because basically everyone did at one point or another, even those who were loyal to Mao. That's kind of his thing. Keep you on your toes, baby. That's exactly right. Deng recognized the spirit of the revolution and what Mao had done and how Mao really represented the transformation of China into a communist power. He, st- he also realized that China couldn't really hope to remain secure if it was going to stay outside of what was becoming an increasingly global economy. Because remember, China was a closed economy. It did not interact in a world where supply chains were being integrated across countries. And now, clearly today, China is one of the big exporters. So this is when it, that, that transformation began to happen from a closed economy to an economy that was increasingly dependent on exports. It was under Deng Xiaoping. Would you say that China's economy before Deng Xiaoping was a lot like North Korea's economy now? Like, is that a good analogy? I think so. Yeah, yeah. That, that seems right. 
Okay, continue. So this is when China's economy began to open up. Now, the communist rhetoric was maintained, and the country remained a single-party one, and that remains the case today. And the party today even really is tantamount, part and parcel with the state. The, the party is the state. But at that time, China's abundance of cheap labor began to be used competitively to create exports that were, quote, lower on the value chain. And, and that all that really means is products that don't take a ton of skilled labor to produce. So they're they are on the cheaper side. So China became a big exporter, right? Which is something we all know and, and either love or don't love. And its economy became quite dependent on exporting to foreign markets that were higher on the value chain and didn't want to you know, produce these low cost goods. And they had a big price advantage in these low cost goods. And people in China didn't yet have much money to spend, which meant that domestic consumption was a small portion of its economy. By contrast, this is the largest part of the American economy. So what, what this meant for China was that they were making a bunch of stuff, but most of that stuff was going overseas rather than most of it sticking around to be enjoyed by the Chinese. And China also began a very heavy state-led investment into infrastructure, right? So think the Great Leap Forward, but a little more organized or a lot more organized. And it attempted to build the skeletons of a modern economy that they could then run from Beijing. So, you know, investment then would become a larger and larger portion of the Chinese economy. You're building a lot of stuff. You're sending it overseas rather than consuming it, which means you've got this kind of surplus and that surplus gets invested back into the economy and the state was running it. So, you know, how efficient it was, was a good question. And just to review, gross domestic product or GDP equals by definition consumption plus investment, plus government spending, plus net exports, right? So when we, when we talk about the economy, the, the reason we, we're mentioning that GDP here is because when we talk about the economy, that sur- GDP is one way to mention total economic productivity, right? Right. One thing to note is that so China's GDP was going up substantially and continues to go up substantially. And we would be remiss to, say, to, to not mention that... A lot of economists argue that GDP is not a good health metric for an economy, right? It's what you're always hearing about, like, how much did the GDP grow down to the 0.1%. But if you think about that definition, government spending is just a mathematical portion of GDP. So it could, for example, take a huge chunk of loans and then spend it however it wants, Milton Friedman's famous example here was, look, you know, if the government takes a trillion dollars in loans and then pays people to dig holes and fill them back in again, your GDP just went up by a trillion dollars. But nobody has consumed anything. Nothing's been invested. Right. It's it's just money wasted. So, you know, we need to not rely on this too much. Yeah, actually, sort of a a funny story about GDP. The Economist who came up with the metric GDP, and I'm now forgetting his name, but it was in the 20s or 30s, I think, something like that. Maybe it was in earlier. Anyways, it was a while ago. He, in one of the initial papers outlining how GDP could be measured and the purposes of it, even said specifically, this is not a good metric for the health of an economy. And then it began immediately to be used to indicate the health of economies. So there you go. Womp womp. So... In this spirit, 
So China's economic growth became driven by those exports, but also upon just building stuff, you know, not just kind of targeting investment to what was needed right now, but building anything. Now, one of China's advantages there was there was a lot to build, right? They had a lot of dirt roads, a lot of not cities, and you could build paved roads and cities in place of those not cities. A lot cities. of not cities. <laughs> and so they started building, 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 building houses, apartment buildings, roads, cities. And we'll get back to those cities in a minute. So as long as stuff was being built, people were employed by the state-owned enterprises doing the building. And the other state-owned enterprises that sold building materials also grew. However. Uh-oh. You always know when there's a however or an all no, although or a but that something negative's coming, right? Uh, uh, I, there's got to be a counterexample of that. This. However, your ice cream cone also comes with a brand new car, right? Like <laughs> that would be that would be the best ice cream cone ever. However, the the amount of construction that began to drive a lot of China's economic growth came to outstrip demand for that property. So when you hear of ghost towns in China, for example, that's the result of way more stuff getting built than there is people to live in or buy them or demand to live in those cities in particular. And just to be clear, just in case anyone, there are no ghosts in these towns that anyone is aware of. They are just empty. They're not actually filled with ghosts. Not literally. If they were, we'd have to do a a tangent here, a typology of different ghosts and the socioeconomic implications of, you know, I'm stopping. The ghost economy. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. By the way, agoraphobia is coming up this October. Get excited. It's going to be spooky. What's agoraphobia, Eric? Oh, yeah. It's a thing that the Agora Podcast Network does every year. And everyone jumps in and participates where we tell some like spooky story related to our podcasts. And so Xander and I have two years in a row have done like nuclear annihilation and apocalypse stories that are real from history. So you can go back and find those. Just search our website for agoraphobia. And actually, we're taking we have some ideas, but we are taking ideas right now for what spooky stuff in history we can talk about. So, you know, send them our way at Reconsider Pod, Twitter, Facebook. Plug done. Continue. So there was not enough demand to buy all of the real estate that was getting built. And except by know, ghosts. By right, exactly. And this is kind of like digging holes and then filling them in, kind of. It's just it's work that's getting done because it's creating jobs and economic activity, even if they're not getting lived in by anyone because some of these properties are bought and then just purposefully kept vacant because they are a way to purchase hard assets, like a real physical asset, something that you can touch as a hedge against the future risk of currency depreciation. And that's some of the people who are buying property in ghost towns don't live there and they still remain empty. Yeah. The the other thing to note about the ghost towns is that at least the story from the government in order to not have kind of a panic about them for the people buying them. The story from the government is that, oh yes, in like 10 to 15 years, we're totally going to take a bunch of people from the poor rural West and move them over to these cities in the East and just populate these towns. So you've got these places that have literally hundreds of thousands or millions of bedrooms that you could just stuff a bunch of people in and, and try to 
start a city from scratch. I mean, I guess the Romans did this at a much smaller scale, but you know, who boy, good luck guys. I salute you if you pull it off. Yeah. So what are we summarizing from this section? Basically Chinese economy came to be increasingly dependent on exports and investment in the form of building infrastructure and real property. So that's, that's the takeaway here. Yes. Now, China's economy has grown really miraculously over the course of the last 40 years or so. Double-digit growth, which has decreased recently, but it has just been going and going and going, and despite a lot of naysaying, it has kept going. But now it really does seem to be slowing down, and even the party is recognizing this. So this growth, at some point, can't go on forever, because if something gets bigger, that bigger thing just can't grow as quickly, right? You can have exponential growth, and at some point, the inertia of the size slows down the growth in absolute figures. Well, it also depends how you're growing, right? I mean, you guys, we're probably almost everyone listening to this is familiar with the term economic bubble or overheated market because we lived through 2008, 2009. And there's there's this notion, this is, this is one of the reasons that GDP is not necessarily a great indicator of economic health is that you can overinvest in a certain kind of market. And after it gets overinvested in sufficiently, at some point, people realize, wait a minute, the prices of these things are way overvalued, right? And we'll get back to that later. But that's another reason growth can't go on forever. It's just that it's not related to fundamental values. As Jake from Cal State talked about these fundamental values and if you want a little bit of a primer on fundamental values versus bubbles, just go to back to that episode. It's called A Retort to the Austrians. So China now is at a point where it is trying to refocus on how it grows because the way it has been growing isn't really sustainable. And we'll get into some of that in a little bit. But the idea now is quality growth versus just high growth. So... China's begin to focus on establishing a bigger consumer base, for example, more people around the country with more money to buy more things. And while China has made these miraculous strides in the last four decades, the, the problem it's facing is that that growth has not been distributed evenly across the population. And much of the wealth that's been generated has accumulated to certain types of people in first and second tier cities, people along the coast that had access to the trade routes that could export to the West. And these cities have now become overcrowded. Property prices have skyrocketed, although this is also beginning to change a little bit. And Beijing has come to realize that it really needed to start developing some of its third and fourth tier cities where maybe not as much industrial activity had been taking place. Side note here, of course, if you ever hear us, you know, blab on about the importance of trade routes, like the Strait of Malacca and, and, you know, rivers and all this stuff. And you start scratching your head and go like, you know, haven't we moved past that? Or, you know, isn't the economy too complex for that? Just look at China. It's the folks that happen to live in a place with access to trade routes that have become fantabulously wealthy, not just the traders, but everyone nearby. And the people who did not have access to those trade routes, their lives have gotten only marginally better over this same 40-year explosion. Can I, can I tangent a little bit more on, sure. on, on those trade routes? Okay, so if you look, again, look at a map of China. Maybe we can put one on the show notes or something. And Done. It's Southeast Asia, this little area called the Straits of Malacca, which is a very narrow passageway through 
Malaysia and Singapore, through which basically all of China's trade with oil, uh, sorry, trade with Europe happens. It all passes through this strait, as well as almost all of this trade with Europe, because that's sort of the most cost-efficient route to send ships on. The problem is because it's so narrow, it's really easy to blockade. And that makes it really potentially dangerous to China's economy. So if you look at some of the infrastructure projects that it's been funding in Southeast Asia with Myanmar, for example, or with Malaysia, many of them are are pipelines that are meant to connect directly to the Indian Ocean to so that ships can dock straight in Myanmar and the oil can be translated overland into China without having to risk going through this narrow strait. So geography still matters quite a bit. Anyway, so in October 2017, Xi Jinping, who's the premier, you know, the big boss, the dictator, whatever you want to call him, chairman, perhaps, made a very long speech at the Communist Party Congress, as premiers are wont to do. But he focused on, among other things, the need for, quote, quality growth over just quantity growth. And this means several things, but a few of the important ones are the following. More equitable growth, so growth that you know, spreads out to the West and the people who live there. And growth that does not come at the expense of quality of living, such as you know, tons of coal that pollutes the air and water and makes it very difficult to breathe outside and, and very bad for your you know, life expectancy. If you've heard about the infamous smog in Beijing and elsewhere, you know, that's, that's part of what he's talking about. And C also clearly talked about a lot of other stuff, but it was basically the announcement that new reforms were going to be implemented that should be expected to be difficult, but necessary to bring China into its next phase of growth. So Deng Xiaoping in 1976 famously talked about crossing the river by finding the stones with your feet. So you sort of, you know where you're going, but you're at each time you take a step, you have to kind of figure out what the next step is once you're there, not before. And so he's continuing that tradition. It was also very public acknowledgement by C that the transition to get there was not going to be easy, that it's going to be very painful for many, and that it was necessary above all else to remain loyal to the party during this phase to accomplish a better future for China. Oh, yeah. Right. Loyalty above all else, especially for the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, which, you know, if there ever were an uprising or something like that, social unrest, it's good to make sure that the the party still controls the army. Right, Eric? Oh, yeah. Now, if you're interested in learning about some of those other reform initiatives that are going on right now, by all means, go back and check out the transcript of a translated transcript of some of what she said in last October. But since this particular show is more meant to focus on the financial system and the economy, we're not going to talk about all of those. We're just going to talk about some of the big reform initiatives that are going on in the financial system. But it is important to realize that whenever you talk about the financial system or the economy in China, that it it is not something that can be looked at in isolation. The financial system in China, as really in any country, but especially in China, is inherently political. Because the risk that the Communist Party is constantly facing is that a collapse of the financial system will basically create enough social unrest that could risk uh, ripping the control of the party away or from the country 
and then falling back into a state of dissolution, which is something that has happened a lot throughout China's history. So the crux of it is that the challenges facing China's financial system are fundamentally political. So one topic we want to talk about is shadow banking. What is shadow banking, Eric? It's banking that is controlled by the ghosts who live in the ghost towns. No, I don't think that's it. Oh, then I have I have no idea. I think that's I think that's ghost banking. Oh, that's ghost banking. Right, right, right. right. Yes. Ghost banking. Yes. Sorry. Oh, whew. okay. Shadow banking. Shadow banking. Yeah, yeah. Different thing entirely. So, shadow banking is a system of banking that is essentially below the books through all sorts of weird mechanisms that different financial institutions and people who work with those financial institutions come up with to avoid the regular mechanisms because if it was above books, it would look really bad. So China's corporate debt ratios are already very high. And so instead of like taking more loans from a bank, which either a bank might not want to do or might be forced to do, and it would look really bad on the books, these, these like both semi-private and semi-public enterprises will like give loans to each other or banks will spin off subsidiaries that will give loans so that the banks don't look over leveraged. So it's actually really hard to track who owes what to whom, especially from a central authority perspective. And there's this saying I love that's from China that's like ancient as the hills. And it goes, Tian Gao Wang Yuan. And uh, apologies to everyone who actually speaks Chinese better than I do, because <laughs> that's probably terrible. But Tian Gao Wang Yuan means heaven is high and the emperor is far away. And this means that the general attitude in China is often like, yes, we revere the government and, and it is supreme and we will always be loyal to it. But like, it's, it's really far away and we've got to like get on with things over here. And to some extent, we're going to do things our own way, regardless of what they want. Right. So a lot of credit has been extended into the Chinese economy over the course of the last several decades, but even more so over the last 10 years. I mean, the number of total debt to GDP, and this is including public and private sector, not just government debt, is something like 280% now, maybe even a little bit more. And because shadow banking has become so prevalent in the Chinese economy, the full scale of that debt burden is really kind of difficult to read. So maybe it's much bigger than that. It's hard to tell because a lot of these transactions or loans have essentially taken place in unrecorded or minimally recorded or very opaque ways. So so the opacity, the lack of transparency in the shadow banking system has actually been a real serious problem for Beijing because it's, it has been really hard for them to even know the true size of their problem that they need to deal with. So this is why some of the first set of major reforms in the financial system that Beijing has been implementing actually since before last October, but they've been getting more aggressive since then, has been forcing greater transparency in the shadow banking market, followed by restrictions in the shadow banking market. So unsurprisingly, a lot of these shadow banking products, by the way, are not legal. They, 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 these transactions occur even though that's, they're not supposed to. And as some of these shadow banking products, for example, one wealth management products had been really widely used 
as they become more more restricted by the central government in Beijing, other new products came around to try to take advantage of whatever loopholes existed. So it's kind of kind of like a game of wha- like shadow banking whack-a-mole. As soon as one disappears, another pops up. And that's, that's kind of the game that the uh, central bank of China and the government is playing right now. The night is dark and full of complex credit mechanisms. <laughs> yeah, somehow I think that Game of Thrones would have been a slightly less popular, popular show is that if that was the tagline, right? Oh yeah, but I, I would love it. Who, who would Jon Snow be in that in that in that situation? Uh, he would be the head of the IMF. <laughs> Instead of a character with a sword, it's it's just like a bureaucracy. Yeah, exactly. And yes. The Night's Watch is the IMF and they're holding off the wildlings and the the White Walkers, which are, of course, the personification of recession and all this stuff. We've got a show, you know, HBO, give us a ring. I, I mean, maybe that's agoraphobia. It, it, it'd be funny Ooh. if like as a result of that, that show that doesn't exist, there's like a sudden surge in demand for people to join the IMF. And when they get there, they're like, wait a minute, I thought I'd be fighting White Walkers. And everyone's like, no, you idiot, that was an allegory. It's like, ah, why did I get a degree in economics? Yeah. Anyways, it does seem, despite all the issues with uh, shadow banking, with the lack of transparency, that Beijing has been making progress on this front. It has been limiting the extent of credit that's available to the shadow banking markets. And if you want to walk out even more on the details of all of this, we'll include some links on the show notes about it. Okay, so what Beijing wants to do is deleverage, right? And just to summarize, tons of debt, don't know where it all is, too much debt is bad. They want to deleverage, which means reduce the amount of debt relative to the assets that are held by the people either taking on the debt or sending out the debt, right? So you may be you may be familiar with the idea of leverage if you paid attention to how the U.S. financial crisis shook up, and that's actually worth thinking about as we talk to this because you know, of course, the 2008 global mega recession was a debt crisis. It was a debt-driven thing, and so China has a lot of debt right now. And high growth, which is where the rest of the world was in 2008. Anyway. uh, Oh, and also the Asian crash in 1997, also a debt-driven thing. So China has all this debt and it wants to wean off of this, but it can't do it too quickly, right? If you just call in all the loans and say, look, stuff's got to start getting paid back right now, it's going to break, right? So because the cash just isn't there, that's the whole point of having a lot of debt. So Remember how much the Chinese economy has become dependent on real estate and construction to fuel growth, right? Where it's so dependent on it that we're building stuff that nobody even needs in order to keep things going. Well, when an economy and its financial system become really intertwined with the real estate sector, that financial sector comes to be at even greater risk of systemic risks. So, That is the the risk that a decline, in this case, it means that if there's a decline in real estate prices, it can actually ripple out through the financial system into a total collapse of the economy. And I'm going to turn it over to Xander, Mr. Economist here, to explain. Sure. So hiring for your small business, if you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The crux of it is this. If the price of real estate declines enough where construction and development companies start going out of business because they can't sell their property for enough to cover the amount of debt that, that they took out to build the property, then they start going out of business. And this happens with individuals too. If they can't sell their property for enough to cover their debt, the debt on the property, the mortgage, then their house becomes, quote, underwater. And that's what underwater means when there's more debt on the house than the, than the house is worth. So the analogy to... 2008 the U.S. is there, right? It's, it's somewhat more complicated in the Chinese economy because so much of economic growth has been dependent on building new property and new infrastructure that much of the economic activity and much of the jobs have come to be dependent on it. So if those const- construction companies start going out of business, then, well, what happens with all the debt that they owe, right? Well, if borrowers can't pay back what they owe, that means that all this money that some bank was planning on getting back from the loan, all of a sudden evaporates. The money isn't there. They can't pay the bank back. The borrowing entity is out of business. So the money's gone. And if the bank's money evaporates, then you run the risk of what's called a liquidity shock. And in non-wonk terms, all that means, all that a liquidity shock means is that a bunch of people thought that there was money in a bank somewhere that is no longer there. And that money includes their deposit accounts and their savings accounts and their investment accounts. No more. And all of this is somewhat related to too much leverage in the economy. So a rapid decline in real estate prices could potentially be catastrophic for the Chinese economy, which means that Beijing must be very careful about how it deleverages or how it reduces debt in its economy. Yeah, those of you who are familiar with South Park or the memes that come out of it, if you have that guy at that computer, Kyle goes up and like wants to deposit his money in a bank where it's going to be safe, right? It's a bank. And the guy, he says, yeah, okay, we've got your money. And now we're going to put it into a subprime mortgage that's been broken up into these various credit mechanisms that are sold out. And it's gone. <laughs> Kyle's like, what? What do you mean it's gone? He's like, it's gone. It's just gone. <laughs> I don't think I've seen that um, episode. Oh, it's really good. But but I mean, the thing is, like, at the end of the day, that is how banks make money is they take your money and they loan it out. And being leveraged in the case of a bank means you have loaned out more money than you like have in the bank account or in people's bank accounts. And leverage is a common thing. Like this isn't just, you know, this doesn't only happen in bad times, but you're anticipating getting that money back with interest and therefore And you're also not anticipating a run on the bank where everyone comes in to get their money at once. But when 
you have over leveraged into, let's say, a bubble that bursts. That's the point where you have the and it's gone phenomenon. And so everyone is hosed when that happens. Yeah. So if you've ever heard of a phrase reserves like bank reserves or capital reserves, this is referring to the percentage of money deposited in a bank that it must withhold by law from lending out. So if it's 10% and the bank has $100 million in it, it can only lend out only. It can only lend out $90 million. It must keep a certain amount of cash on hand at all times. Yeah, actually, quick correction on something I said. The bank cannot lend out more money than has been deposited. It can lend out more money than it has on hand. Right, yeah. Yes, and and that is that is the essence of leverage. So being very highly leveraged is when that reserve is very low. So to summarize, real estate, huge portion of the economy, lots of building, potential bubble, very high leverage, lots of credit going into it, much of it not tracked, shadow banking. What this means is that if there's a major problem in the real estate sector, which you know, seems more likely given all the ghost towns that ripples through the financial system, money evaporates, credit dries up, banks start going out of business, construction companies start going out of business because, you know, they can't pay back their loans and you start getting this like massive ripple through the entire economy. And that's how you get economic collapse. Womp womp. Yep. So the next topic we're going to talk about where a lot of reform is going on is with local governments. So the problem with deleveraging is that there are incentives built into China's very complex bureaucracy that encourages more debt being lent out and therefore more construction. So how can it deal with construction and leverage if these incentives are there, right? Well, Chinese local governments derive a large portion of their revenues from land sales. And I'll I, that literally means land that is controlled by the local government is sold to a developer or something like that. Now, technical note here, land cannot be sold in, in China because technically the Communist Party owns all land. So these tax revenues are in the form of land transfer fees. But for all intents and purposes, thinking about them as land sales or land transactions is fine for this discussion. So who buys that land? Why? Real estate companies, of course, development companies, entities that want to build on that land. And what makes it easier for those real estate companies to buy more land? Well, if they can borrow money from a bank, then they can they have more money on hand to buy more land, right? They don't have to use their own money or they can supplement their own money with borrowed money. That means that local governments have an incentive to encourage borrowing by construction and development companies so that they can use the land sales to generate more revenue for the local government. Ooh, okay. So up until now, China has focused on quantity growth, right? Just grow, grow, grow at any growth. And local politicians were incentivized to encourage this growth, not just because of party incentives, but because it made them money with each land transfer. And so they were like, yeah, yeah, just keep going. And yeah, sure, take on more debt. Sounds great. However, if politician A, let's call him Wang, encourages a lot of borrowing to generate local tax revenue and spend it on fancy new infrastructure projects that boost the local economy, he's going to get promoted. Look how great my town is growing. Good work, Wang. And maybe 
Wong gets a fancy plush job in Beijing, right? And that means that he wouldn't have to deal with the long-term negative consequences that come with having way too much debt. Wong is gone. That's left for politician B. Let's call him Jing. So Jing shows up and all of a sudden Jing has, you know, all this debt he has to deal with. But Wong, who made that decision in the first place, is long gone. So these whack incentives mean that it became illegal for governments to take on debt directly, right? So Beijing recognized that these incentives were all messed up and said, no, 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 <laughs> local governments, you're not taking on debt to do this. This is bad. However, they found loopholes, right? And they're called local government financing vehicles, were entities that were technically another entity that was not the local government, but they were often associated with state-owned enterprises that would be doing the construction, right? So you see everything's getting tied up and intertwined here. And these separate local government financing vehicles they would be the ones that take on debt and would fuel more land purchases, lead to more revenue for the local government, and therefore more money for the local politicians' pet projects that would get them sent to Beijing when the party says, hey, good work. And this is another area where transparency is a huge issue because it's hard to tell exactly how much local governments have borrowed because they've borrowed through these technically unrelated vehicles. Yes. So this has continued to grow into a problem that along with the semi-private banking sector, which has gobs and gobs of debt, and the, the real estate and construction sectors, which are working on gobs and gobs of debt, you also have the local governments themselves that have gobs and gobs of debt. And if at some point people can't pay this debt off, suddenly the local governments also have no money, right? And you probably have these infrastructure projects that are going to grind to a halt Right. And, and these like half built highways sitting there and people unemployed. And so, you know, there's there's potentially a very scary scenario ahead of us. Gobs and gobs. I feel like the, the Chinese debt gobstopper was like Willy Wonka's least popular candy. <laughs> <laughs> it just immediately indebted the family of the child who ate the, the, the debt gobstopper. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Where's our money? Oh, your child ate the gobstopper. Oh, Man, I had a golden ticket. No, no, no. That was collateral. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> we own that now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the last area where we're going to talk about uh, some major reforms going on in the financial system is with state-owned enterprises. We've already mentioned these a lot in the show, and they are basically what they sound like, big Companies that are managed directly by the Communist Party, they have, up until now, played a very large role in the economy. They've been providing a lot of investment. They've been performing a lot of this construction and generally generating a lot of growth in the economy. And critically, they have been major sources of employment. So they employ a lot of people. However, big state-owned enterprises have not been particularly efficient, and this has been becoming increasingly so recently. As time went on, they've become less profitable and their ability to stay running has become more and more dependent on debt because their profit margins are slimming and you can't run a loss forever. But since they've provided so many jobs, they've become, or they've always been, politically important. Beijing can't let them go under. So that just meant more and more debt and slimmer, slimmer profit margins to keep them running here. 
I actually have a question, Xander. So yes. I'm imagining the actually the collapse of the Soviet Union's economy. And one of the, the stories, as I understand it, is that, you know, it, with communism generally and with the Soviet Union in particular, one of the things that is politically necessary is to promise that everyone has a job, right? Unemployment is going to be essentially zero. For the Soviet Union, when these state-owned enterprises that they had were struggling and were running at a loss, the Soviet Union actually kept them going by subsidizing them and and ended up just kind of driving itself into the dirt until it all totally fell apart because you just kept operating at a loss over and over again. And it turns out this can't go on forever. How much is China like that right now? How much is China right now similar to the Soviet Union? Is that the question? Yeah. How much is it similar to the Soviet Union in the late 80s when it was when the Soviet Union was just subsidizing these organizations running at a loss in order to keep employment at at full? Gotcha. Well, there are some similarities, but I think there's also a lot of differences, one of which at that point in the late 80s, the Soviet Union was still very close off to the world. It was still more or less a closed economy. And at this point, China isn't really. So while both the Soviet Union and and China pay lip service to having a completely centrally planned economy, China's has become somewhat less centrally planned than the Soviet Union's was. And the Communist Party pays lip service to sort of a centralized economy, but more and more they've been extending latitude to the private market ever since they opened up to the global economy. That doesn't mean that they're not still heavily involved with guiding economic development. They are, but it is very hard to do that when you don't know exactly what's going on. And that's becoming a recurring theme of the show, right? Is that getting data for Beijing is hard and they're trying to increase the amount of transparency at all levels of the bureaucracy stemming from the central government all the way down to local governments. So I, I don't think the the economies are really comparable but certainly at least the political notion of central planning they had in common is just the degree to which that was actually implemented. Mm, thank so, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Beijing's major struggle with the with these state-owned enterprises is that they're not particularly competitive. So China needs to find a way to channel capital that has up to this point been plowed into these state-owned enterprises in the form of debt into more productive enterprises, more productive businesses. So think small and medium-sized businesses that can do something new and innovative and are a little bit more flexible and can see a gap in the market and move to fill it much more quickly than a big lumbering company can. But since Beijing can't just let all these big state-owned enterprises fail at once, since it would create widespread unemployment and therefore risk political unrest and risk an uprising against the party, Beijing then must be very careful about how it tries to manage the transfer of capital away from these state-owned enterprises to small and medium-sized businesses, increasingly in a private sphere. So again, unlike the Soviet Union, gradually trying to let the private market grow and do its thing while still retaining some control over the, over the direction of, of the economy. So as we've talked about here, right, China's economy is at a lot of risk due to the debt on one hand and the inefficiency of growth on the other hand. And 
we've talked about, you know, an analogy to the 2008 and 1997 debt crises. So there is, you know, there's this risk hanging over its head. Now, the West went through the Great Recession and, you know, the, there wasn't a revolution, right? The, the countries didn't split up. There was a ton of political turmoil around it, right? You know, one symbolic form of that was Occupy Wall Street in the United States, where, you know, a lot of Americans said, oh, it's, you know, this is Wall Street's fault and they need to be sort of taken down. And similarly, you know, there's a lot of issues in the European Union, including like Greece and Portugal, uh, over over the debt that they had accumulated and weren't able to pay off as nations because of this. But it is fundamentally different for China. At least that's the general understanding. Like that's kind of the commonly accepted trope. It may not turn out to be true that China is at greater political risk when there's a recession. But here's the story as to why you know, the analysts tend to think that. So China has a very long history and a very long memory, right? The, they sort of look to the Western countries and think that they're kind of pups in comparison to this, this notion that China has that for 5,000 years, there's been China. And throughout China's history, China has united and divided and united and divided. And when it was divided, obviously things were really bad, right? Warring states, you know, the Warring Kingdoms period, the the Ten Emperors period, the Five Emperors period, the three states, the five states, the seven states, all those were bad enough on their own. But even worse, when China is weak or or worse divided, China is actually vulnerable to its neighbors. So China understands this, right? China remembers Japan's invasion very, very acutely. That came at a time when China was very weak and divided from its own first civil war between the nationalists and the communists. It remembers the West dominating it. It remembers, you know, the opium wars and the Boxer Rebellion and China's coast being sort of colonized and split up. And it remembers the Mongols, the Manchurians, the Tibetans, the South, you know, these, these like Indo-Chinese states from back in the day invading it and, and raiding it and picking it off. For China... Unity is security. And, and as we talked about in the first episode, security is kind of an obsession for China, in part because it's surrounded by a lot of potential rivals or enemies, many of whom are allied to the United States. And even the Communist Party itself came to power during a peasant revolt. And I, I didn't even mention that peasant revolts are like, you know, super common in Chinese history. Not necessarily more common than they were in the West, but because China's history is so long, your educated Chinese bureaucrats can point to like, here are a dozen peasant revolts I'm aware of. So why are they worried about, you know, unrest or, or a peasant revolt in particular? Well, not only are the peasants generally prone to revolt in China from the government's perspective, but the way that China has held on to having one party in an age where, you know, Chinese people can look out and see that the rest of the world is, is there much of the rest of the world is democratic and multi-party and there's more freedom. One of the ways that they've continued to sort of justify their existence is that growth has kept coming, right? People are getting wealthier. People are getting more comfortable. And this hasn't trickled over to the West, right? You don't have, you know, anywhere close to the kind of middle class that you have in the West. 
And there is disgruntlement in the West and even parts that are not the West over the, this inequality, over this lack of growth in the West. But there's been this promise that, look, guys, we continue to grow. We continue to have an economic miracle. We're still chugging. And it's a little bit of like be patient, but also, look, we're doing a great job here. We're doing sort of the best we can. And if you interrupt things, if you, you know, mess with it, if there's unrest, this growth is going to stop and your future prospects aren't bright. You know, and, and one of the, you know, kind of generally accepted notions through history is that people tend not to revolt on a full stomach mm. and tend not to revolt when they believe that the prospects of their children will be better than their own. And so the Chinese Communist Party believes very deeply that continued economic growth and continued, you know, the continued promise of a, of a better future is critical to maintaining the, the assent and consent of the people that it's governing. And if it were, if the economy were to collapse, if there were a major recession, you know, this patience may dry up and you may start to see substantial social unrest. Okay. Deep breath. That was a lot. And this is not a simple subject. So let's just do a quick summary of some of the key points we hit on in this episode. And then as always, there'll be stuff in the show notes if you want to dig into any of this stuff in greater detail. Basically, China is trying to do a lot at once, and it must do very delicately in order to not cause any sort of systemic collapse of the financial system, which could potentially, or maybe even likely, lead to large-scale social unrest, and therefore instability of the state and the party itself. And this is the background with which China is confronting this new threat emerging from the United States, the trade war. And that, of course, is what we're going to talk about in episode three of Reconsidering China, the trade war. So Mm. come back next time and we'll do some deep diving there. We should do more of these cliffhangers. We should. It's like a good HBO show. (laughs) Yes. Reconsider the HBO show of political podcasts. Yeah. Xi Jinping is is Jon Snow and. And you've got, you know, Trump with the leading a bunch of people with knives to surround the guy. And you're like, oh, it's going to happen. That's not actually how that episode ended. But, you know, (laughs) cliffhanger. So we've actually got the notes ready for the trade war episode. So we will get that one out on time. So you don't have to wait too long. And until then, we'll catch you guys in two weeks. Don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Eric signing off. Zaijian. This is Xander signing off. See you next time. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.